you know, construction is a dirty practice. You know, I mean, we, we try to make it as clean and safe and wonderful as possible. But at the end of the day, we're still delivering thousands of parts and pieces outside in the mud and dirt and rain and putting that together to a beautiful end product. But it's a it's a messy process in the meantime. And so we really invest a lot of time and energy uh, educating our customers about the process, what to expect, and then really knowing that it's not their job to finish the home. It's our job to finish the home. I think a lot of customers feel like, especially with new homes, you know, I got to go inspect. It's my job to make sure the paint is done in this corner and that this thing is caulked the right way and all that. That's our job. And so we are not going to have kind of a final walk and a sign off walk for the homeowner until that home has been signed off by on a couple levels on our side. We want to make sure it's hundred percent complete and we won't walk the customer until it is. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me on the Fort today. I have Chris Weekly with me who is with Weekly Homes down in Houston, Texas. Weekly Homes is one of the largest privately held home builders in the country. And today we have a fascinating discussion on uh, their company and their culture and what makes them great. We talk about the different product types in home building and some of the challenges and opportunities in home building. We talk about the markets across the country and what 2020 presented for home builders and what things look like going into 2021. Just such a great episode, a lot of data. Home building is one of the backbones of our country. And if you're listening to this episode and and you're interested in home building, you'll take a lot from it. So thank you again for joining me and enjoy. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Chris. Really glad to be here. Thanks for the invite. No, I appreciate it. Well, let's just kind of get started with a little bit about kind of you and your story growing up and what kind of led you to where you are today. Sure. Well, that's a, a loaded question. Um, <laughs> let's see. So grew up in Houston, Texas um, and had a great childhood growing up. Kind of mom and dad that have been married for years and years. Actually met in middle school, as scary as that is, now that I have a daughter in middle school. Um, and younger brother and sister uh, ended up going to Vanderbilt uh, University for undergrad. And I lovingly say that it's the uh, best school I got into, the furthest away from my parents. <laughs> because uh, I just wanted to kind of get out of Texas, get out of the bubble a little bit and just go explore. So had a great, uh, great time at Vanderbilt. And then uh, from Vanderbilt, you know, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life and didn't have a good answer at, uh, at 21. And so, so then I kind of thought about, okay, well, where do I want to live? And so uh, as, as sophisticated as this, this sounds, I uh, looked at a map of the U.S. and decided I want to live in a big city that wasn't cold and uh, decided on San Francisco. <laughs> okay. And so, uh, so once I figured out where I wanted to live, that's when I started to go uh, figure out what I wanted to do. And so applied to a bunch of different jobs and ended up with three different job offers and three very different industries, one in consulting, one in global logistics, and one in real estate. And ended up in, with the real estate job because I think they paid like $4,000 a year more than the other guys. And I was just trying to make rent in San Francisco. That's not easy to do. No, it's not. It's not well, especially today. I mean, back then it was it was still expensive, but nowhere near what it is today. And so, um, but yeah, so I had a great, great three year experience out there working for a residential real estate company that did everything from custom homes on vineyard lots all the way to uh, mid rise condos in downtown San Francisco. Wow, what company was yeah. that? So, a company named Signature Properties, still in existence today, and and really, uh, you know, great company, and really have a lot. To, family owned with uh, father, son at the helm, Gilmetti family. And so I uh, really have a lot to say thank you for. They, uh, that was during kind of the dot-com boom. And so uh, had some great opportunities to work at on projects that I really shouldn't have been at that age, you know, 22, 23, but uh, had a great experience there and, and really enjoyed San Francisco. So San Francisco kind of winds up after three years and what do you do next? Well, so, you know, ended up, I met my wife in Nashville. And so we kind of dated and got married out there. So I don't want to leave her out of the story. And so um, after three years in San Fran, we both knew that we weren't going to raise a family there. We're trying to figure out what to do next. And maybe this sounds a little bit like college, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. 
And so I uh, decided instead of trying to like figure out, okay, where are we going to go live? What am I going to go do? You know, maybe business school would help me figure that out. And so, uh, so you know, took the G, uh, business school entrance exam and then uh, applied to a bunch of different business schools and ended up going to a school called the Acton MBA in Austin. And uh, it's a one-year MBA program focused on entrepreneurship. Great program uh, for those that want to look into it. But really had a great experience there. And they had a class there called The Life of Meaning, which really helped me kind of unpack what my true passions are and really what, where I wanted to focus my life on. And that kind of kept me in the real estate field. And so at, at Acton, I kind of uh, figured out that I knew a little bit, you know, again, in, in my early 20s, I thought I knew a lot about, you know, how to go find land. So that's what I did in my previous job. And then knew a little bit about architecture there, but I knew nothing about construction, sales, warranty, operations, how to actually go build the product. And so that coupled with the fact of, you know, should I go work for weekly homes kind of led me to, you know, literally go ask my dad, hey, so what do you think if I, uh, if I came, <laughs> came to work for you? Yep. And, and, and I'll say this, um, growing up, my parents both did a great job of really separating family and work. And so I think, a, a, you know, for a lot of folks, the family business is all encompassing. And I would say that, that my uh, dad worked very hard. And so when he kind of came home, he wanted to be home. And so, you know, it, I did spend some weekends out driving properties and looking at houses, but it wasn't like a, every Saturday, we're going to go do that. And it wasn't a, you know, dinner conversation we're going to have every night. And so there were no expectations for me to go work in the company, which I, looking back, greatly appreciate because that really allowed me to go explore my passions. Did your dad ever spoke about why he set it up that way? Was that something intentional he did or just kind of how he was? Or Because you, you really don't hear that with family businesses very often. No, I mean, I uh, I would love to say that there were some profound, you know, fireside conversations uh, where we explored that topic. But no, I mean, I, I really do believe still to this day that, my, you know, my parents want me to be happy and want me to follow my passions. And it's the same thing with the kids. Now, I'm guilty also of, uh, of taking my kids out occasionally on the weekends or going to show them some big equipment when we go, you know, pour some big streets or do this out of the other, yeah. um, trying, to, trying to spark their interest. But there's no expectation at all. At the end of the day, I think, any parent just wants their kids to be happy and fulfilled. And, and I know there's a very small chance that, you know, and uh, I guess my chances are better because I have five kids, but there's a small chance that, uh, that any one of them is going to choose home building. And I want, at the end of the day, I want them to be happy. I love it. Real quick, before we just jump into kind of that transition, you mentioned the life of meaning class at the Acton school. And yes. I've, and I've heard this come up in conversation multiple times in, in, we don't have to go too deep into it, but how is that class structured? Like, how do they get that answer out of you? No, I mean, that's so great question. And I'm a little embarrassed at my, my response, but it, it, it works. So, I mean, one of the very simple things that they ask you to do at the beginning of the class is, you know, what are your top 10 dream jobs? I think they ask you to list that. And, you know, at that point, you know, going through business school, my wife was pregnant all the time. And so I, I literally, I started to list these dream jobs and like, one of the top ones was like, you know, lead singer of a rock band. Yeah. But I, I was like, okay, so, so that's, that's not that realistic because I can't sing. Like, I love music, but, but that's not going to work out. Uh, job number two was let's go develop resort hotels in the Caribbean. Like, I want to be a hotel guy in the Caribbean. And I was like, wait, well, so where are my kids going to go to school? Like, what island are we going to live on? Like, how is that actually going to work? And so, like, very quickly, these things that I thought were kind of dream jobs, once I kind of thought through the realities of, everyday life and kind of what I envisioned for my family, I kind of figured out, all right, I kind of need to like take that off my list. You know, maybe I'll come back to Rockstar. Maybe I'll develop some drug that'll allow me to sing better. But, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, it really kind of came off my list and I really started to think about practically what I really liked. And so, I mean, a bunch of different questions around that in the class. And really, it was really kind of a, a class effort because we also gave feedback to one another about what we thought each other were good at. And what jobs we, we thought uh, the other person would be good at. And so for me, uh, I had a transformational lunch with one of my professors where he helped me understand that, I mean, I really do love building things. And so I, I, I like having a tangible benefit to my work that you can go see, touch and feel. And I love kind of the aspect of, of creation with that as well. And then, you know, kind of the fulfilling side of it at the end as well, knowing that families are living in, in those houses and memories are being made and, and what we're constructing. And so to me, you know, even though again, home building isn't the uh, coolest or sexiest asset class in the world, and you know, I don't think there are a ton of people in college right now saying I want to be a home builder when I get out. And I, I wish there were. 
it's an incredibly fulfilling um, industry, and obviously, I'm totally biased, but really do love what I do, and I don't view it as a, as a job, and really do you know find my passion there. I love it. All right, so you go to your dad. You've you've graduated. You've kind of uh, decided that maybe make did, was your next move to Weekly Homes, or did you go do something before that? Yeah, so, so I had that job in San Francisco. So that kind of gave me some outside work experience. What is it like to work for other people? What are the expectations? I mean, simple things like vacation. I mean, I remember, so I went to work, I think I started in August and Thanksgiving came around and I didn't have enough days vacation built up to go to like the family Thanksgiving. And my mom and dad were like, wait, what do you mean you don't? And I was like, sorry, I don't have enough days off. And they're like, oh gosh, we got to figure this out. <laughs> so I remember, I, th- I think my dad actually went back and ended up, altering the weekly homes vacation policy to ensure that, hey, when you start, you're going to have enough days to, to go back and, uh, you know, take those big kind of traditional family holidays that, that you need. But um, so, so transition uh, to weekly homes and uh, directly from there. And really, you know, you have to understand one of the reasons that I did that is that I knew that the company measured everything. And so to me, it was very important that I be treated as equally and looked at as equally as possible. And so the fact the fact that there are a ton of measurements and metrics in every position we have at the company really ensured that that you know I'd kind of have a fair shot. And uh, the deal was I had to make it through the interview process, and you know, and I went and interviewed just like anybody else. Took the same aptitude test, the same this, the same that. And by the way, uh, I should say the Acton MBA that that school is in Austin, so I actually moved from San Francisco to Austin. So I started with the Weekly Homes in Austin. Okay, and you um, made it through the so- interview process. <laughs> it made it made it through the interview process, um, you know, and it's it's long. I mean, we our average interview has seven to our average new hire has seven to ten touch points with their hiring manager, and so and so uh, very lengthy. And and we want to make sure we hire uh, the best and brightest folks. We want to make sure they're committed. And so really is quite a lengthy interview process. So I made it through that, and then kind of got onboarded. And, and my job was a builder. You know, I really started off as a as a builder for us, and for me. It was a big change because I had thought, you know, again, uh, early 20s, right? You think you know everything. But, you know, San Francisco, I was having like these power lunches with city council members feeling like I you know, knew what was going on. And then I, you know, end up in Austin, you know, the painters at the house I was I was building said he was going to show up at 9 a.m. And it's like 10 o'clock. He's not there. Well, I mean, come on. You know, you said you're going to be there at nine o'clock. Like that's that's not how things work. Like I've, I've been in work for like three whole years now. I know how this works. And so, <laughs> and so it really was a great experience and good wake up for me. And building homes is incredibly difficult at the same time, incredibly rewarding kind of being at the, at that level. So you develop great relationships with the vendors and trades and then great relationships with the customers that you're building for as well. Yep. Well, before we get into the nuts and bolts of the home building business, I just think as as I've kind of seen David Weekly Homes from the outside and gotten to know you and you know, work with some people that have been there, the the culture, the way that people are brought up in the organization, the longevity that people actually stay at the home builder, which traditionally is an industry with a lot of turnover. Everything goes back to y'all's culture. And now that you've had a chance to be there, how long have you been there now? I have been here 13, almost 14 years. So 14 years. I just kind of want to just dive a little bit into kind of the culture of David Weekly and how y'all think about it. Y'all have a university where you train people. I know that people take on multiple roles. They go from builder to salesman as they continue to climb. But like, how do y'all think about culture and, and how do you continue to grow that with such a large organization around the country? Sure. So first of all, you know, our kind of mission statement and kind of what we believe and and live for is building dreams, enhancing lives, our team, our customers, and our community. And it's very important that that order is very intentional. Um, So team coming first. So, you know, we really do treat our team members, um, (laughs) you know, as, as, as a big family and really want to support and prop them up in many ways. And so, you know, for example, we have a, we have a uh, 401k program that's a, uh, 8% dollar for dollar match. And we, you know, we want folks to come work with us to be able to retire and, um, you know, be able to live a very fruitful life, retirement, et cetera. In addition, we also just set up uh, in the last couple of years, an ESOP program. So everyone, every uh, team member at Weekly Homes that's uh, been with us two years or longer is an owner, an actual physical owner in the company. And so, and that, and that benefit is designed to be equal to our 401k benefit over time. 
you know, it takes a little bit while for that to build up, but over time that'll be equal to the 401k benefit. So we really do uh, take care of our team in a number of different ways. We have great medical, we have great dental vision. I mean, all, all the normal things. Another interesting thing we do is we share our profits. And so every quarter we have profit sharing, assuming we make the metric and the metric, you know, let me zoom back real quick. So home builder, we have great revenue numbers, right? I mean, we sell very expensive products. So our revenue numbers sound great and huge and, and they are. So like this year, We'll do two and a half billion in revenue, but at the end of, at the end of the day, home builders are five to eight percent, maybe nine or ten in good time percent net margin business, and so you know it's it's kind of pennies on a dollar, right? So I mean it's it's uh, with five percent building a very complicated product, it's hard to you know make sure we have to be very exact in all of our science and thinking, and so our metric is if the company makes five percent or greater that quarter. And we pay you profit sharing on kind of that that five percent, and so that's another great way that we take care of team members. So let me go from team, customers. Um, you know, customer service is kind of our our secret sauce, and so we really do uh, focus a lot on that. And one of the things I'll I'll say, you know, I'm sure everybody's seen the uh, the rating system on Amazon, right, with the five stars, and you know, you want to find stuff that has close to the five star rating. You read the good reviews, the bad reviews. Well, we were the first builder in the nation to roll out our own ratings and reviews. And so we've maintained that 4.7, 4.8, in some cities, 4.9 uh, rating. And and this isn't like us rating ourselves. This is like done by a third-party agency, approved by Google, all that sort of stuff. And so uh, we really do spend and invest a lot of time uh, with our customers and ensuring that they have a great process all the way through from beginning to end. And actually, 30% of our business uh, comes from referrals, wow. which, is the, which is the best you know, thing we could ever hope for, you know, free, free advertising, great customers, great, great information out there, et cetera. And so we're, we're proud of that. And then last but not least is the community. So a lot of different community efforts, um, both from the company. And then also we have a family foundation that uh, actually coincidentally my, my sister runs and dad's very involved in it as well. And so he invests uh, uh, half his time on weekly homes and half on charity. And so that's kind of another arm uh, that we think about as well is how do we take care of our community around us? I love it. What's David Weekly University, and and how did y'all think about developing that? Well, first of all, so I wasn't here when it was developed, so I saw that I saw that question on the list, and so I'll, I'll give you my best rendition of the history. But uh, you know, the reality is this is our forty fifth year in business, and so we've had some incredible team members and incredible creators of the culture. You know, culture isn't something that's built overnight. It's not something you can kind of just put on a card and put in your wallet, and all of a sudden people have culture. And so, really, Weekly Homes University was built. I'm gonna get this time wrong, but probably 20 or 25 years ago, by some of those, you know, very big early on culture creators at the company. And really what it is, is that's kind of our entry course into management at Weekly Homes. And so, you know, let me back up real quick. So if you're new to Weekly Homes, we actually, well, pre-COVID at least, uh, and we'll get back to it at some point, but we actually fly every team member uh, that we hire in the company to Houston for two days. And so we think that's a very important part of it. We bring them to our HST, which is essentially our corporate office, but we call it our home services team because we don't like the term corporate. Yeah. Um, and so uh, so we bring every team member here. We have a weekly 101 that every team member goes through to learn all about the company. They take a tour of the building. They get to hear from uh, my father. They get to hear from John Johnson, our CEO. Get to tour of the office, go sit in David's desk if he's not there, all that sort of stuff. And really, and, and you know, kind of have everybody drinking the Kool-Aid and so, so we do weekly one-on-one, and then so that's kind of the entry course in the company. David Weekly University is the entry course into management. And so it's a, you know, it's a series of classes over you know nine months' time uh, sometimes, and you're in there with a great group, and so you actually have a graduating class with you as well. And so you know, you're learning from great other managers kind of in the same new management position and learning from you know, really our culture creators that we have at the company that have been with us a long time. So it's a it's a great course. It's kind of a capstone course for us. And, uh, you know, really proud to have that kind of infrastructure built in. And we have some great teachers that teach it. And and it's a fun course for all of, all of us that get to go sit in on it to see kind of these, these bright-eyed uh, new managers excited to go learn what they can and wrestling with with issues because, you know, people aren't easy. Yeah. And but really kind of learning how to work with uh, teams with empathy and then doing that was kind of our mission statement in mind as well. Yeah, the best part about business is people and the hardest part about business is people. 
<laughs> no, I agree 100%. Do you have to have been at Weekly for a certain period of time to be ready to go to university, or is it uh, depends on where you, at what stage you enter the company? So the short answer is yes. I mean, we, we wouldn't have somebody that we hire off the street and send them right into university. And so we want them to be in the company and in the culture a little bit, you know, and, and really most of our managers are uh, promoted from within. I mean, we, we, of course, hire from outside as needed and want to make sure we kind of don't uh, inbreed too much, <laughs> probably yeah. the right term, term to use. But, uh, you know, we want to make sure that we hire folks from the outside as well. But the vast majority of our managers are promoted from within. And so, so really, generally, it's, it's a, uh, tenure team members that have shown their their stripes that kind of get the invitation to go and and you know everybody's always excited that that they have the, the invite and it really is kind of a, a great course uh, for those that get to attempt cool all right well kind of pivoting a little bit just more into uh just kind of strategy and then industry y'all are all across the country i can't remember how many markets you're in but how many markets are y'all in Yes, yeah, so, so 19 markets in 12 states, and the, the easiest way to think about it is Texas and Florida are two biggest markets, so we're on all the major metros there. And then we have Carolinas and Georgia and Tennessee, and then we kind of go up north to Indianapolis, Minneapolis, go out northwest to Portland, and then we have Phoenix, Denver, Colorado Springs, kind of in that that area as well. And how do y'all think about expansion? Is it uh, growth goals, or is it you guys keep an eye on a market for a while, and once it kind of meets your your sniff test, you start entering that market? Yeah, well, first of all, I have to shout out uh, to Dallas. Without Dallas, Texas, David Weekly Homes would not be here. So, you know, uh, Weekly Homes was born in 76, and in the early 80s, the oil crisis in Houston, uh, Dallas actually expansion is what saved the company. Wow. So huge, huge uh, props to Dallas, and Dallas is now the largest housing market in the country. It's now surpassed Houston, and so uh, continue to have great success there. And um, so that really expansion is what saved um, the company in the early '80s. And so um, for us on expansion, I mean, we've expanded to five cities in the last, oh, I think it's six years. And um, really, that kind of all came within a, a spurt of growth for us. And um, you know, you think we'd kind of have expansion down, but uh, you know, every market's different. You know, uh, the way they build is different, the way land transactions is different, all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, you kind of have this hockey stick where you go into a new market, you pay the dumb tax, you lose a little bit of money. And then, you know, the whole game is how quickly can you get back the money you lost and then, you know, st- start to send money the right yeah. way and, and, and make money. And so for us right now, I'd say there's there's no markets that we really have our eyes set on. Really, we think we have great operators, great team members in 19 markets. And the reality is uh, our goal is to increase our market share in those markets. So rather than go grow uh, by geography, we're growing in, in depth and we're doing that through different uh, product types. So we've always had kind of our traditional weekly homes. You know, we also have an active adult product called Encore now that, that we've introduced and is growing. We have an entry-level project product called Imagination by David Weekly Homes that's uh, that we're growing as well. And then we have Central Living, which is kind of an urban product that that's uh, been around for about 10 years or so with us that we're growing out as well. So trying to grow in depth versus in breadth, of course, if a good opportunity opens up, we'll always look at it. But right now, just trying to focus on more market share. That, that makes sense. Yep. No, that makes a ton of sense. I want to ask you about Encore in a second. But before I do, is within your current markets, can you just shed any light on uh, where the hottest markets are right now in the country? Uh, you know, Texas and Florida are obviously doing well, but anything that's catching your eye? I mean, the the reality of the situation is that everything is on fire. And I, I say that as humbly as, as possible. I mean, I have, I've stolen this term from somebody that, that used it on me, but I have survivor's guilt as a home builder. Yep. Um, you know, we in March and April were having uh, tough conversations about what happens during COVID. And the reality is uh, 2020 is, is going to be a record year for the company by far. Yep. Um, and it's just, uh, I'm totally bewildered to sit here and say that. And I feel horrible for all those that are struggling. But luckily, home building has been good. And, and the reality is, is that home means something a lot different today than it ever has. And so I, I think we'll be able to capitalize that uh, on that uh, for a long time. And, and really... I mean, try and adapt to what society is looking at. I mean, the reality is if you're not having to go into the office five days a week and you're going to be at home more, well, all of a sudden home is a lot more important. Right. So that couple with low interest rates and, you know, homeschool and all the other factors, I mean, it's it's been a boom for home building. And so just feel 
blessed to be able to say that and you know don't don't know how long the the wave will uh, will last or we're going to ride it as long as we can for sure no i think there's a lot of us scratching our heads in march and april it's just been crazy how that year how 2020 played out you said you're going to grow in depth and you mentioned encore central living you mentioned imagination can you maybe just touch on really encore and imagination curious about the entry product and curious about almost the what's the over 55 kind of the i don't call it the exit product but the later product maybe it, 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 yeah the active adult is the uh, is the pc term yeah. so um, so imagination you know we had a kind of a housing uh, crisis of affordability if you will attainability and so that's kind of all that was talked about for a number of years. And so really what happened is, is all the big builders started um, you know, trying to get down market and get to more affordable product. You know, if you, if you rewind a little bit, you know, we, we had the housing downturn and really all the you know, financial crisis, all that really wiped out the ability to go do that lower end product. You know, we had all the issues with the loans, we had foreclosures, all that sort of stuff. And so, um, you know, coming out of the downturn, that wasn't a huge focus because that just wasn't a viable business at that time. As attainability and as housing prices went up, et cetera, uh, and attainability decreased, that became a quick focus for all the builders. And so uh, for us, that was actually a huge percentage of our business pre-downturn, and then it all disappeared. And so now we're trying to get it back up. I mean, I think it was 30 to 40% of our business pre-downturn, and today it's 5 or 7%. Wow. And, and for us, that's kind of a 200000 to maybe $300,000, $350,000 price point. And so uh, we want to get down there. Now, now that said, we can't compete with some of the big guys that are just going to be bare bones, low price, low price. So we're we're a little bit of a premium to folks, but still working uh, very hard to kind of get down that price point and grow that business because that's the reality is that's where the majority of the market is. And so we need to be a player in that in that area. Do y'all focus more on central living or suburban building, or is it a combination of both? For for the imagination or just in general? I guess for, is is the imagination is something that you can actually build in the the center city or is that purely suburban? No, it's 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 really it's really purely suburban. So so central living product might be ten to fifteen percent of our business. You know, truly defined as urban core. Got it. You know, what's really interesting now is that some of these big master planning communities and, and we're blessed to be. And I think last count, I think we're in twenty or twenty five of the top fifty master planning communities in the United States. So a lot of those master plans are now so big in developing these wonderful town centers that we're actually able to build kind of urban quote unquote product within master plans that are out in the suburbs. Wow! And and so we're we're getting to kind of hit a different a different product there and different price point. But I also want to go back back to Encore real quick. So so Encore is our active adult uh, lifestyle brand, fifty five plus, and uh, you know and that's the product for the baby boomers, right? You have a lot of folks that uh, you know kids are leaving the house trying to figure out what's next. And so what we've done traditionally is we will go and work with uh, our development partners and go build a really a community within a community and these big master plans that, uh, you know, oftentimes is gated, oftentimes has its own amenity. And we'll go work through an active adult age restricted 55 plus community. And so that's been a uh, it's been something new for us probably in the last seven, eight years, maybe but definitely a growing part of the business and definitely something that we're starting to get notoriety for with in, in the development world. And so we kind of have a, a model where we can go take and, and repeat in different communities around the country. And we're really excited about it. I think there's a great market there and really, um, you know, we think now kind of paid the dumb tax and trying to learn all the different intricacies of that. And, and, you know, the buying process is a lot longer, you know, what floor plans work, what, what don't and all that, but really excited about that, the future in that business. And so they have to be over 55. Can can they have kids still living with them or it has to be an empty nester with both adults over 55? So this is where you're going to get me in trouble. Um, <laughs> so uh, my understanding, uh, well, it, the short answer is it's going to vary per community with restrictions, Got right? And, and, and different cities, et cetera. But um, no, it's, it's designed to be where the active adults are 55 plus are the main residents there and there are restrictions on on how long guests can stay and folks under the age age limit etc in most of those communities so it really is an age restricted play with because the folks that buy there uh customers that buy there really do want to be surrounded by people like them and and i can understand that i mean i got i got little kids running around and i want to be an active adult <laughs> one day with no kids sometimes i even want to be in one now and i've got a four-year-old and a one-year-old but just for short <laughs> moments in time I agree. I agree. 
uh, I'm not asking for your secret sauce, but what are things that over 55 people want in a community, in a house, like the top few things that are just interesting that separate them from uh, maybe a millennial buyer? Yeah, so so a few different answers. I mean, you know, uh, one thing that's very important is a sense of community. And so we really invest a lot of time, energy, and effort on our community centers and how we program those with activities and life, that kind of lifestyle component. Yep. You know, so, so we'll have a chef come in and kind of show her prepare a meal. We'll have bocce ball tournaments. We'll have this, that, and the other. And so that lifestyle component is very important. In terms of the actual plans, you know, the reality is these homes are designed to be affordable, right? I mean, a lot of folks are, are moving down. And so, you know, you don't have these big four and five bedroom kind of, you know, big square footage behemoths, you really get down to kind of most of the times two bedrooms, maybe with an optional third. And what happens, it's a smaller square footage, so it's less expensive. But then uh, a lot of customers invest a lot of, a lot of money doing upgrades in those. So they, even though it's a smaller square footage, say they're moving from a 3,000 square foot home down to 1,500 square foot home, they want that 1,500 square f- foot to be just a great retreat and great kind of palace for them. And so they'll end up, you know, even though it might be more affordable at the get-go, you know, they'll end up investing a lot more dollars on average on options upgrades. Because really, I mean, they kind of envision it as their forever home. If they want that fancy career marble on the countertop, well, you know, they can get their fancy career marble on their countertop. Right. I love it. And then usually master bedroom down. Yes. I mean, uh, far and away, one stories, you know, we'll have optional second floors that might have an extra bedroom, maybe a playroom for grandkids or whatnot. But no, I mean, it's 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 living down for sure with with a master bedroom on the ground floor. Okay, so now COVID, we have work from home. Are you guys anticipating this trend of more home offices built? Or are you kind of waiting to see how things shake out once COVID's over? Yeah, so we kind of two answers to that. One is we have kind of our top 100 or I think it's actually top 200 selling plans. We've designed some small pocket offices, so just very small offices, almost kind of a, a closet size where you can close the door yep. and, and be in there on a call. Because we found that, uh, you know, with so much happening from home, whether it's school or work or husband and wife both working, you know, occasionally you need that time for just quiet time. Um, so that's one way we've answered it. The other way is just kind of general design standards. So, you know, our head architect, what he kind of explained to me is that over time, you know, and, you know, <laughs> 15 years ago or whatever, that study used to be in the front of the house and closed off. Over time, the, the study slowly got closer and closer to kind of the family dining and kitchen. It was kind of more of an open concept, the study. And so now we're kind of slowly going to start to pull that study away from kind of the active space in the house, if you will, and get it you know closer to the front of the home or maybe in the back corner or upstairs or whatnot. And so just a little bit further away, so it can be a little bit more isolated. Um, you know, I think there's no doubt that, uh, you know, with vaccine insight, et cetera, things will get back a little bit more to normal. But I think that's a trend that will continue to be there with folks being able to work from home more often. Got it. And then one more kind of question just on like style, the millennial generation, the younger generation, the tech savvy generation, uh, are they, I guess, question one, are they buying later in life? And two, is there anything interesting that they're requiring in homes that is different from a 55 year old or somebody, uh, in an entry home? Well, so first of all, you know, I'd say a lot of the housing boom is really fueled by the millennials right now. You know, the, the, the reality is a, a lot of the millennials um, ran for a long time, right? And and maybe saved their money or shared, you know, shared an apartment with a friend or whatnot. So they had some savings and now with the interest rates, what they are and the loan programs, et cetera, they're able to go get in a home. And so, you know, I really do think a lot of this housing boom, I mean, everybody's kind of been upgrading, but a big part of this has been uh, folks that, you know, maybe don't want to live in an apartment with folks, you know, above and below and left and right of them. And maybe if going to reach that life stage where they're like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to get a house and, and we're going to figure this out. So, so really kind of excited about that, about them coming, you know, really into the marketplace, not that they truly left, but really kind of coming back in and really that, that trend changing a little bit. And hopefully it's, it's here to stay in terms of what they want. You know, not a lot has changed. I mean, I think people still want, you know, <laughs> you go from apartment, right. The first thing you want is a yard. And so they want a fenced in, fenced in backyard. They want, you know, the nice new house. They want to be able to design it themselves. I mean, uh, design all the interior options themselves. So um, what I will say is, you know, some of these I referenced this earlier, some of these urban cores that are being developed in these master plan communities, these kind of town centers, we are getting millennials that will move out to those areas because we're building around this and kind of more dense product. So they're coming from apartments, so they still get a house, but all of a sudden that house is 
on a smaller lot. It's a little bit more dense, but also makes it a little bit more affordable. And they're still being able to go walk to a coffee shop or a pizza shop or something they might experience inside the city. Now they're getting a similar experience, scaled down, of course, but similar experience out in the suburbs. Got it. You started to see a lot more ride sharing. I had sent you the question on kind of self-driving cars and just the way that people are getting around is going to, is changing and is, and is uh, forecasted will continue to change. Like, how do y'all think about that? Um, are you designing communities differently or kind of your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, listen, I'd love to have a profound, profound answer saying that we're designing, you know, our first, uh, you know, Uber heliport community or whatnot. <laughs> the, 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 the reality is, is that we, uh, you know, we are beholden to local codes and ordinances, and they want a two-car garage, and we're really not seeing that need shift. Now, uh, when it does shift, I mean, we can adapt very quickly as a home building company. We design plans every day, in-house architects, all that sort of stuff. So we'll be able to adapt. We really haven't seen that need. And, and really, we also don't want to be the first guy out there doing it, right? I mean, it's it's uh, we, we want to make it as easy as possible to, to buy a home. And really, Americans today, a lot of people you know, don't even park two cars in the garage, right? You might be able to fit one, get all your other junk in the garage. You have another one on the driveway. So we're still beholden by all these local cord codes and ordinances. And as long as those are there and we're not seeing a shift in demand, we really haven't thought a lot about that. What I will say, kind of, uh, for me, looking out 10, 20 years in the future, the thought that, uh, you know, I was getting concerned that, you know, so you keep on going out from the urban core, right? How far will people drive? Well, I think all of a sudden with self-driving cars, if you can, in theory, be driving, you know, 70 miles an hour, five foot away from the car in front of you that's self-driving because they're all talking to each other. Well, then all, all of a sudden that traffic becomes a lot more efficient. And so that the boundary of how long you drive is going to increase and oh, by the way, now you're reading the newspaper, you're having coffee, you're on your iPad, you're doing whatever in that car. So that drive isn't as big of a deal. And so, you know, so I think that will will greatly kind of enhance, you know, and further grow kind of those those rings or boundaries around all the urban cores. And and really, I mean, we haven't adapted any of the plans. I haven't really thought that from a uh, from an architecture standpoint on the homes, but I think it will impact kind of how far out communities can be. That's one of the best ways I've, I've heard anybody explain it. I cannot wait to sit in a car and drink coffee and go 70 mile hours down the <laughs> highway reading my iPad. No, I mean, it's, it, it sounds great. I just want to feel safe doing it. I think it's going to be a few years, but, you know, in, in Elon, we trust, right? In Elon, we trust. Tesla is like $700 billion company now, headed to $700 trillion, it seems like. Why not? All right, I said that was last product type, but I forgot the main question or the the kind of the newer one. The single family rental has gotten all the rage this year. Growing asset class, are y'all doing it? How do you think about it? Is it going to be huge? Yeah, I mean it's it's so interesting. Um, you know, so one of my uh, jobs at the company is, is I'm the guy that gets to go to you know a lot of the conferences and you know go, go hear different speakers and kind of different thought leaders, et cetera. And so what I would say is that, uh, you know, over the past three years, single family rental, it seems like has gotten 10 to 20% of the conference airtime, if you will, when only, and I don't know the exact number, but the starts of single family rental might be less than 1% or 1% or 2% of, you know, housing starts. And so, I mean, there's been a lot of talk. I mean, multifamily starts are huge, right? But I'm saying true single family rental starts are very low. And so it's gotten a lot of talk. So where we are today is uh, earlier this year, we appointed one of our uh, senior level leaders to kind of lead that effort for us. And so um, it is amazing. You know, we kind of thought, I mean, well, his first task was to go learn the industry. And then we kind of thought he was going to have to farm leads. Well, it ends up, I mean, we get calls and emails and requests from every Tom, Dick and Harry all the time about, hey, can you guys do this for us? Can you guys do that for us with single family rental? And so let me kind of just say where we've landed so where we've landed today is that uh, we are going to be a general contractor in a cost plus relationship uh, with a developer. And so, you know, if you think about putting a deal together, right, you have to have the land, you have to develop uh, the land, you've got to build the home, build the homes, and then you have to rent them. And so, of those four steps, that sounds very simple, all complex. We don't want to do the first and the last. So we don't want to go find the deal, and we don't want to go rent the deal and, and own and manage it, but we will go help them self-develop the deal and put in roads and streets and we will go help them build homes. And so we've gotten a lot of requests from a lot of different partners. And all I'll say now is that, uh, you know, we've decided rather than kind of do onesie, twosie relationships with different folks, um, you know, we've decided to try and focus on uh, folks that have more of a national footprint that really mirrors ours. 
And so, um, so we have a few different parties that we're in discussions with. That says today we have about two thousand units uh, in our pipeline. Wow! Now, and that's not all contracted for. It's not all through DD and all that sort of stuff. We just started, I think, our first single-family rental home. You know, last month, which means we probably net by now started five or ten. But it's a very interesting model for home builders because, right, you get to do what you're really good at, building homes. You don't have that sales risk. And we love our customers, but at the same time, you know, customers, you know, every home is different. So this allows us to go build very efficiently, very quickly. And so far, the multifamily um, general contractors haven't been able to kind of reach the cost that kind of a single family builders uh, can reach. And so really, we haven't, you know, that those uh, commercial GCs haven't kind of gotten to the residential cost structure. Now, if they see everything shift, I'm sure they'll get there with us. But it's a different type of trade base. It's a different product at the end of the day. So it's been interesting. Some companies have focused on it a lot. We're we're kind of you know taking uh, sticking our, our toe in the water, if you will. We're, we haven't committed any equity into this yet. So right now it's kind of purely GC cost plus. That might be something we do in the future. But we're exploring it. We've had lots of conversations. Have learned a lot and are in a good position to to work with some great national partners. And and uh, the toughest part is just is just finding the deals and and uh, finding finding the land to make it work. Yep. And are the houses that, that these folks are building, are they smaller? Are they nicer than a regular apartment? Is the Or is it very similar to a for sale home? Like what are the differences that you're seeing? Yeah. So, so there's really two types that we're seeing. And so one I'll call kind of your typical suburban home. So that's generally a 40 or 50 foot wide lot, kind of your normal square footages, normal bedroom count, three or four bedrooms. You know, think about it as, as just kind of your normal you know, average American home. And those are all done on singularly platted lots. So, you know, if we were to talk to somebody about that, we might go build a hundred of those. Well, they could, you know, worst case, they could go sell those individually if they weren't able to sell them as a group. Right. Right. So, so that's kind of one side, we'll put that off to one side. On the other side is what we call, well, there's different names, but horizontal apartments, uh, pull apart apartments. I mean, we call them a lot of different names, but yeah. essentially it's the same mix and bedroom count as your traditional garden multifamily they're just all detached. And so um, and so that's been predominantly, that's what we've been focused on. And I say that that's that's just the partners that we're working with. That's what they want to build. We'd, we'd be happy, happy to do either or. But that's been uh, what we've been focusing on. And we actually have an in-house land planning architecture team. So we're able to help them go land plan that and do all their architecture and all that, which really helps with our cost as well. And so that's just kind of where the majority of our units have been uh, thus far. Cool. All right, one more kind of question as it relates to to weekly, and then I, I want to do a few things on just industry. Um, sure, y'all are. I think I'm right by saying this is second largest privately held home builder, or one of the largest privately held home builders. You did two and a half billion in revenue, and we had a lot of people ask us like, "How do y'all raise money to build all these homes if you're not public? Is it are you able to share anything on that?" Yes. So um, essentially, there's two methods. So we have public bond debt. Yep. We have 400 million in public bond debt. So you know we go out to Wall Street and go ask them for money every you know six to eight years. Mm-hmm. And luckily, just just uh, did a new round of that recently and, and got a good rate. And so that's that's kind of half of our ability. The other half is um, you know we have a syndicated bank line with uh, six or eight great banks uh, that all came together and said, we'll lend you X amount of money. Got it. And and so really, those are the two two ways we're able to finance this. Now, what I will say, and this is a little bit different than that, and that's really, thing about that is financing the home construction piece of it. Right. Okay? Uh, when we go self-develop and we go actually act as a developer and go take on the land risk, development risk, all that sort of stuff, uh, we do that as as separate entities, um, separate LLCs, and so that we actually do go out and go raise money for the development. You know, we keep the home building separate, so we're able to, you know, still build the homes on the the two different methods I just talked about. Right. But the actual purchase of the land and and the land development costs, putting the streets and roads and sewers, et cetera, all that is done through uh, you know different equity and and non recourse bank relationships that we have. Got it. And you said that customer service is where y'all separate yourselves from the pack, and that's everything I've heard. And a lot of times, especially smaller home builders, and um, I actually built homes at one point in my career, but they really get eaten up with everything that happens post-sale, whether it's warranty work or just those, you know, contractors coming back to finish that last little thing. Like, 
how do y'all think about the day that people move in and what that next year looks like? That's where a lot of home builders get real stuck. Oh, great question. And um, yeah, luckily, we've been at it for a while. So we've learned and played our dumb tax plenty of times. But uh, the reality is we have a very sophisticated system and process for that now. And the first and foremost piece of it is that we build quality homes. And there are so many checks and steps in the process, so many inspections by managers, by outside consultants and inspection companies, et cetera. I mean, that's where you make or break your warranty is the construction quality up front. And I would put ours against anybody. We are very strict uh, with our education and training for builders. And then also the inspection process that goes with that. And really hiring all the subcontractor base that we have. Very uh, very strict and regimented with them. We have great partners that have been committed. I mean, these folks have worked with us for 30 years plus. But I mean, we're not an easy company to work with, but we're very dedicated and we pay fast, et cetera. And so the quality piece is 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 crucial and paramount. So that's that's step one. Step two, and this is maybe just as important, uh, is we will not close a home that is not 100% complete and clean and to our standards. And so, you know, we kind of get in this, it's a mental race every year, if you will, that we, hey, we want to have our best year ever, so let's close as many homes as we can in December. Well, all of our management team every year gets the same message that we are not going to close homes that are complete. And so, you know, our, our project managers from our first level management in the field, that the folks that are really doing a, a lot of the great work in the company have to make that decision that, listen, if it's, uh, you know, December 20th and we're supposed to close the customer on the 21st, but, you know, their cabinet's broken and the, the washing machine didn't come in or the dishwasher, whatever it is, well, we've got to make that decision, the hard decision to, to delay closing because we want folks to move in and really enjoy that process. And sometimes that might give us a little bit of a black eye with the customer. But in the long run, it's going to make them so much happier and feel so much better about their home. The other piece of the process, we, we set a lot of expectations up front early. You know, construction is a dirty practice. You know, I mean, we, we try to make it as clean and safe and wonderful as possible. But at the end of the day, we're still delivering thousands of parts and pieces outside in the mud and dirt and rain and putting that together to a beautiful end product. But it's a, it's a messy process in the meantime. And so we really invest a lot of time and energy, uh, educating our customers about the process, what to expect, and then really knowing that it's not their job to finish the home. It's our job to finish the home. I think a lot of customers feel like, especially with new homes, you know, I got to go inspect. It's my job to make sure the paint is done in this corner and that this thing is caulked the right way and all that. That's our job. And so we are not going to have kind of a final walk and a sign-off walk for the homeowner until that home has been signed off by on a couple levels on our side. If we want to make sure it's 100% complete and we won't walk the customer until it is all right uh one of the most popular questions was the cost of lumber is 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 high right now uh which is a big part of any home how do you think about that and how are y'all kind of uh hedging your your bet yeah so um you know a few different answers i mean one is right if it's high for us it's high for everybody and so and so you know it's not like we're at a competitive disadvantage because everybody's having to kind of figure their way through it um, you know, it's, it's a temporary thing. It was really high. It went down. Now it's headed back up again. Um, and so it's a commodity. We have a sophisticated supply chain team that watches the, uh, lumber, uh, indices daily to see what's happening. And, um, you know, we make buys strategically focused on that. We buy like for Texas, we buy lumber as a state. And so we're able to make some, some big purchases and just be strategic about the cost and lock in that those for a certain amount of time, et cetera. Um, and so really, I mean, everybody's on kind of the same page. One way that we've used it strategically is that it's allowed us to lessen our discounts, right? So so one of the things that's uh, just part of the home building industry, and I'm not proud of it, but right, I mean, when people go, and it's resale too, when people go and buy a house, they expect to get something off of it, right? The list price is just the list price and people want to go negotiate. And so, you know, the home building industry, uh, we're all guilty of this, is that we, we discount. And that discount can be, Three percent, and sometimes it's ten percent of the list price of a home, right. which is kind of crazy. And so for us, we decided, you know, that, that we really don't want to kind of play games with customers in that way. And so we've uh, we've started to lessen our discount. So if a community, let's make it up numbers here, let's say that uh, that community, the discount was twenty thousand dollars with kind of the instructions given by our management for that community. Well, if lumber's increased uh, seven thousand dollars in price, okay, well then now we might only give off you know ten thousand or twelve thousand or thirteen thousand dollars, and so just decreasing that discount and really keeping our pricing the same. Now that can't 
you know, that can't last forever because eventually pricing's got to go up. And so, you know, that's something that we as a company that we're working on is it's really trying to get rid of the discounts. We, uh, to an extent, cause we don't believe it's fair that, uh, you know, one person gets a better deal than the next person that walks in the door. And, and, uh, as, as a industry, we're kind of guilty of that. And so we, we want to start to get a little bit better at that, but it's going to take some time. Yep. What are the biggest challenges that you that you think about on a day to day basis? Is it labor, lumber, regulatory, land sites? Like what 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 keeps you up at night as far as challenges? Yeah, so, so number one by far for us right now is land, and I think any home builder in the country would would tell you that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the reality is we've had record sales um, in 2020, which just means that we're we you know ate into our <laughs> the homes we were planning on selling in 2021. Right, and so the dominoes have kind of fallen, and so all of a sudden, uh, you know, our pie just got bigger. So we got to go put a lot more things on the top of the funnel. And so, for us and every home builder out there, I mean, it is a race to arms for land right now. And so that's a uh, that's land in master plan communities. That's land that we're going to go self develop ourselves. And so that's kind of the the biggest opportunity is land right now uh, for any builder out there, just because sales have been so robust that we just need to go be able to replace that business. Otherwise, we're going to shrink and you know, we, we really don't want to do that. So is it a lack of developable sites at this point, or is it just land prices have gotten so high or both? I mean, it's a combination of both, but I mean, the, the, the reality is that if, if we found a piece of property today and said, go, or any, I mean, this could be in a master plan community. It could be, you know, down the street from where you are. I mean, we have to go engineer it. We got to go get the right government approvals. We got to go develop it. So all of a sudden, you know, all the land development contractors, all the jurisdictions, I mean, everybody's busy, not to mention there a lot of them are working from home. And so everything's slower than it's been. And so, so it really is just kind of a crunch on the governmental side, on the development side and engineering side. So there's just going to be a huge pig working its way through the snake, if you will, um, for land sites right now. And so that's of course also going to drive up pricing and competition. So it's a, it's a concern for everybody. We're all in the same boat together. Um, and there's only so much out there. And so now's a good time to be a seller for land. And everybody's just going to you know, push and pull and fight uh, the best they can to uh, to do what they can to keep on growing. Yep. Is the U.S. underbuilt or overbuilt? Or it depends where you are. Uh, I mean, that's like an economist question. Um, <laughs> You're not an economist, I mean, it, too? <laughs> well, as, as a home builder being biased, right? I mean, uh, and, and the data really shows that we're, we're underbuilt, right? We've been underbuilding kind of our, our needs for years now. And so, I mean, yes, we're still underbuilt from a population standpoint. I mean, we still have room to grow. Um, you know, if you look at the charts, historical charts, we're under where we should be from a starch perspective. Um, but again, I go back to this land has gotten harder to find. Regulations have only gotten more strict. And that's regulations both on what we can build, but also what goes into the homes, right? So now there's energy codes. There's all these different things that have made homes more expensive. So there's just a lot of headwinds. I mean, obviously, we're, we're getting through them and they're... We're able to build products that, that people want as our most builders. And so we're getting through them, but it continues to be a, a big area, especially after the last, uh, you know, last year that we've had, really everybody's had in terms of selling is that, you know, we just need to go refill that pipeline and, and it's not going to be able, able to happen soon enough. Okay. A couple more business questions and then we'll, we'll bring it down sure. the pipeline for some personal ones, but is there any technology, whether it's software or prefab homes or modular, is there anything like on the horizon that's going to have a dramatic impact on the, either the speed to build homes or the cost of homes? Or is there any kind of silver bullet or or no? At some point, yes, there will be, right? I mean, the, the stark reality is that home building as an industry, the way we build homes hasn't changed a lot in 100 years, right? We've gotten hard hats and gotten tower tools. And we have more sophisticated ways that we build for sure. But in terms of delivering products on the site, building out in the weather, et cetera, none of that has changed in a long time. And so we hear about great technologies every day. There's a ton of smart people out there doing modular stuff. You know, you got the uh, icon guys in Austin, 3D printing homes. Um, you know, so you got a lot of neat ideas out there. The question to me is, you know, what's going to land first and what's going to be uh, most efficient? And so really what I've seen so far is the modular guys, because really the vast majority of the rest of the world builds modular. I mean, Europe is a modular, you know, home building area. Uh, Japan and Asia is modular home building. And so the U.S. is really one of the ones, only ones that still stick builds. And so, you know, that I see coming uh, to fruition. But really, I think it's going to start on the coast, east and west coast. 
And it's going to start in multifamily and hotels where it's rapidly repeating units, if you will, versus homes that all have different designs and all have different interiors and this and that. So that industry is starting and it's, it's starting to, to thrive. But it's, um, you know, people have tried modular for years and just hadn't come to rest yet in home building. I'm confident we'll be there at some point. So just kind of a matter of time with modular, you know, you got the 3D printing shops, et cetera. So a lot of really exciting things. Um, it's just going to be a long time until you're able to satisfy you know, the needs of, of you know, big production builders uh, with an affordable, efficient solution. Yep. And then just on cities, cities, it doesn't matter whether you're in home building, any type of development, they're becoming t- tougher to work with. The The wait times are longer. You mentioned all these new codes and and every city has a different code. And it doesn't seem like there's like a lot of light at the end of the tunnel that it's getting easier at the city level. Is there any silver bullet there or is there lobbying going on to make, because it's also driving up the price of homes. Uh, the government keeps saying we need more affordable, but everything they're doing is actually creating uh, situations that make things take longer and cost more. Is there anything being worked on that's interesting as it relates to cities? Well, first of all, let me say that we love all our cities and jurisdictions <laughs> that we work in. Let me be the bad they, guy. <laughs> right. No, no, I mean, listen, it's a, uh, I get it right. I mean, if you look at our world uh, in total, you have all this push with, uh, you know, ESG, with alternative energy. I mean, there's a, there's a shift that's happening, a global shift that's happening. And, um, you know, so some of those codes are shifting with that. And unfortunately, that shift right now, where I get frustrated is that some of those shifts don't have payoffs in the near term, right? So, so some some of the energy and some of the different code items, the payoff might be 15 years. Well, the average customer lives in their home five to seven years. And so why am I going to charge them extra for something they won't see the benefit of when there's other technologies that will pay off in two or three years? And it's like, hey, let's do the technologies that can pay off quickly, that people see the benefit in, and let's not waste our, our time, energy, and effort with these that you know won't see the benefit uh, for years to come. So, I mean, it's a... Yes, there's lobbying efforts on both sides, and and both sides, you know, honestly believe that they're right. I mean, I don't think there's a, you know, a bad element trying to get get something in, but I mean, it's uh, it's tough. There's no silver bullet. You know, we just try to be as uh, good to work with as possible. Try to follow the rules as as much as we can, and be as, as flexible as we can with all of our jurisdictions. But no, it it continues to get tougher. I mean, you know, there there was a day when uh, uh, plans didn't get, need to get engineered, right? Home building plans weren't engineered. They were just designed by the home builder. Well, you know, <laughs> now they're engineered, <laughs> yeah. right? Which, I mean, uh, and so, I mean, it's it's slowly changing. We're, we're adapting just like everybody else, but I, I don't see the the tide shifting strongly, you know, in reverse direction with less regulation, unfortunately. Yep. All right. I'm going to have, I have three personals and then we'll, uh, we'll bring her home. All right. Do you have a childhood experience that you remember vividly that has shaped who you are today or maybe changed the direction of your life? Oh, I know. I mean, I read these big questions and kind of the, the prompt you sent me earlier. And I was like, man, this is like, this is profound. I can talk about home building all day. <laughs> now you can talk about my childhood. Um, so, so I thought through that. I mean, there's, there's not one, you know, I'll, I'm going to mention a, a few different experiences here that I think all helped. And, uh, so one is boy scouts and, and becoming an Eagle scout. Um, one is, and I'll, I'll tie all three of them together. Uh, another one is outward bound participating in, in that outdoor, um, kind of adventure, uh, travel uh, program. And then a, a third one is amigos de las Americas, which was, uh, consisted of me living in Honduras for six weeks, uh, one summer during high school. And really all three of those, um, kind of taught me, the long-term benefits of putting in hard work and kind of seeing things to the end and, and completing a goal, if you will. So, you know, of course, school tries to teach you that as well, but but all three of those through different methods all kind of taught me that the rewards that come with putting in a lot of hard work and completing something to the end and, uh, yeah, just learned a million different things along the way. So those are all kind of childhood, middle school to high school experiences that I think really, really shaped me, uh, all for different reasons, but all great programs that, that everybody should should look into i love it what's the best advice you've ever received yeah i didn't like that one i mean i have like on <laughs> my uh on my office like i'm looking right now like i have like probably 20 quotes from different people that i can see that that, that i just love um and so i mean give us know, three of them it, it, okay, okay well he, here's one from my dad which is uh which is you know if you're gonna do something you might as well do it right 
which which sounds really simple, but it's like okay, you, you know, don't do something uh, halfway, and if you're if you're going to commit something, then finish it through to the end. And so a little bit about the like like the experiences I explained before, but uh, that that would be one for sure. Biblical quote: Whoever wants to be a leader among among you must be your servant. Uh, that's one that I ha- have in my office wall that I, I think is great. So here's Jack Welch one, another good one that's good. Before you're a leader, success is all about growing yourself. But when you become a leader, success is all about growing others. You know, so just some different ones. And for me, I mean, I'm I'm in that state right now of constantly learning, and, and unfortunately, uh, I'm not retaining as much as I feel like I should or used to. And so I have to like write things on my wall to remember them. But uh, but no, I mean, I, I think there's a bunch of uh, great quotes and sayings out there, and a bunch of uh, great people that we can all look up to and. And it's important to just always stay in that state of learning and not ever think that you've got it figured out. All right. And then just piggybacking off that, is there a, is there a book, even a personal or a business book that uh, has helped you? Yeah, I didn't like that one either. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer, I'm going to, I'm going to answer multiple. Well, it's hard to pick one. I mean, there's so much good out there. So a uh, personal one, and I don't get to do this nearly as much as I, uh, I want to, but Clive Cussler has his Dirk Pitt character. He's like a James Bond. Like uh, I can go be, you know, I want to go be Dirk Pitt when I grow up. But you know, business books. I mean, I love Grit by Angela Duckworth. You know, I loved uh, Phil Knight. Shoe Dog was a great book. You know, anything from Adam Grant is great. So he has originals and a couple others. And so, I mean, I, I think the important message in all that is just to be reading. I mean, I, I'd say as a management team, we do uh, eight to ten book reviews a year wow. uh, together. And so there's always something I'm reading, which I think is important. You just kind of keep on putting fresh knowledge in and take different things. And so right now, our leadership read, our leadership team is reading The Dichotomy of Leadership. It's uh, one of the books by Chaka Wilnett, one of the Special Forces guys. We've read a couple by him or maybe one other by him before. So, I mean, to me, you know, I think the message is to, to keep reading. And yeah, I've had some great books, but I, I kind of keep on, you know, I, I kind of want more and, and kind of want to keep on exploring new ideas and new thought leaders. Okay. I told you there was one more question, but you just said something I just got to ask and then we're done. I know, I know you're ready, but (laughs) you just said you do like a, a, I don't know if it's a book club with your management team. I've, I've done a hundred episodes and I've never heard that. How do y'all think about that? Who picks the book? How does that work? Is it informal? Like, can you just give a little color and then we'll bring her home? Of course. Of course. So, um, well, we have two kind of different senior level management teams. And so um, what will happen, kind of our area president level, kind of our most senior level management team, um, you know, we'll do a book review uh, kind of every time we meet. I think we meet nine or 10 times a year. So that you can guarantee that there's a book uh, do most of those. And so we have a group, and I'm not on this group because I just, uh, my excuse is I don't have time. Uh, I also haven't been asked to be on the group of, of who picks the books. <laughs> But but, uh, but a couple of our of our guys are, are big readers, and uh, and so they'll they'll pick things that get recommended to them, or look on the New York Times bestseller look, list for business books. And and the fun thing is we rotate too. It's not all business books. I mean, there's some you know, like Phil Knight Shoe Dog, right? Like that that was a great story. Uh, we've read a lot of history books on World War II, and um, you know some great things there. Read a book on Sam Houston that was great. So we mix it up. So uh, there's somebody that picks. Uh, then it magically shows up on everybody's desk with a due date. And, uh, and at those meetings, we invest about an hour. And the whole goal is everybody needs to have a few different things they want to say about the book and what really impacted them. And that can be on a personal level. It's generally about business. And, okay, maybe we should think about doing this different. Maybe we should think about doing that different. Um, and so really kind of all keep us open and learning new ideas and it really is a great practice. I mean, I'll fully admit that if without kind of the due dates, I mean, I wouldn't be reading this number <laughs> number of books. Um, and so uh, for me, it, it really is kind of a great escape to get to do it. And I love that we mix it up. And then what happens, We kind of our next level leadership team underneath that, we meet four times a year. So there'll be a book review at every one of those. And sometimes those book reviews will be you know, from that higher level uh, team. And so sometimes they're new books, sometimes it's different books, but that's how we kind of end up with eight or 10 books a year. Um, learning a lot of different things. And, you know, sometimes we get in there and we're like, you know what, that book wasn't that good. Let's, you know, instead of an hour discussion, we'll, we'll, we'll make it 15 or 20 minutes and, and move on. Yeah. All right. That was great. That was, I've just never heard that. That's uh, it's really cool that you do that. Chris, thank you. Really, really. I appreciate you taking time to talk about your business, home building, everything in between today was awesome. 
Well, I have to say this, uh, you know, I, I want to thank you because I told my kids I was going to be on podcast last <laughs> night and for a brief minute, they thought I was cool. And so, and so like, that's every dad's dream is they want to be cool in front of their kids. And so for a brief minute and they're like, wait, like a real podcast. And it's like, yeah, a real podcast. Like, oh, cool. <laughs> that is so funny. We just had a guy on that said now that he's been on the podcast, I think the Dallas Mavericks stars, Luca something it's him. And then Luca now in his, in his son's eyes. And so uh, that's awesome. That's so yeah, cool. No, so yeah, you're making dreams come true for parents, Chris. Thank you more. <laughs> Well, I hope to uh, see you at a YPO event soon and we'll get to catch up more, but this was this was awesome. Hey, great. Thanks so much, Chris. Really appreciate the invite. Appreciate your time and wish you the best in uh, 21. Thank you. You too, buddy. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye, Chris. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.